0: As you remain standing, I invite you now to take up your copy of God's Holy Word and turn there with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where, where I will be reading verses 27, 12 through 27. Let me get this cough drop out. I have a suspicion that I just might need it this morning and a sip of water. So 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, beginning, reading there at verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And have all been made to drink into one spirit, for in fact the body is not one member but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our most gracious... All kind and long-suffering Father, we come before you during this hour to humbly hear and receive the preaching of your holy word, and as we do so, we give you thanks for Christ who is our head, even as we are his body. We confess that though we have heard this truth many times, there remains a mystery to this organic unity that you have revealed in your word Gird up the loins of our minds, we pray, and shape the desires of our hearts and grow us up into greater spiritual maturity in Christ, who put to death on the cross the enmity between God and man and has drawn us unto himself that we might have access by one spirit to the Father, creating in himself one new man. Help us to understand a little better and to love even more what it means to be the church. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and our Savior. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> and as we consider the text before us this morning, I am keenly aware that I am preaching to a people who, who know and have heard And read this passage many times. I trust that as the word of God, such familiarity does not breed contempt. Yet I do want us to know that the analogy that Paul is using is on the one hand easy to comprehend. And on the other hand difficult to apply and live out consistently. Therefore I take comfort and courage in Peter's second letter where he writes to the church For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. And so as we take time in this short series of messages to consider the question, what is the church, it will be important that we embrace the familiar truths and lean into them and be stirred up to greater faithfulness in all they hold, it is our duty and our great joy, I want you to know, as your pastors, to preach Christ, warning and teaching every man that we might present every man mature in Christ Jesus. And so as a a bit of a brief review from last week, we considered the church's identity and in that message, I pointed out the, the radical deconstruction of what it means to be human happening all around us. And I did so with a particular focus on the, the threats of emerging technologies. And, and even as we acknowledge that every new technology we see throughout all of history does actually shape for good or for ill man's relationship to the world around him, whether it be the advent of steel or the printing press, or the locomotive, or the railroad, the automobile, the airplane, you name it, I would suggest just a little here that some of today's emerging technologies, I believe, will likely affect the way so many in the world see and understand what it means to be human. Rather than being a tool that can be used outside of us, we're seeing this turned inward we're already seeing the early stages of fragmentation and deconstruction and augmentation of human identity. And therefore, we need to make sure that we lean not on our own understanding, but trust in the Lord with all our hearts and look to the unchanging and perfect Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ for our identity. When we don't understand with absolute certainty who we are in Christ that it is God who created us and not we ourselves, then we should not be surprised that the church quickly fails to understand what it is and whose it is. The unerring revelation of God regarding what the church is and is to be is set aside and replaced by cultural cues and worldly wisdom and fueled by personal feelings and opinions. And ultimately, the church ceases to be the church at all. But we need to remember... That the church is called out of the world and into Christ. It's called out of darkness and into His marvelous light. He has taken those who were once not a people and made them now the people of God. We were once those who had not obtained mercy, but we now have obtained mercy. And our text last week from Matthew 16 showed us that Jesus is the Christ. The long-awaited Messiah, the Son of the living God. And we have his sure word of promise that he is the cornerstone and he will build his church upon the foundation of the apostles and the gates of hell will not prevail against her advance. The risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ is seated right now, even right now at the Father's right hand, actively defeating all his enemies and putting them under his feet. The church, as the bride of Christ, must therefore take great comfort and great hope in this truth, and look to her head and the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and see how it is that she is to conduct herself and who she is and what is her mission. So how does Christ lead, direct, and care for his bride as he builds his kingdom? How does he do this? As the Pharisees try to accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, He knew the intents and thoughts of their hearts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. The bride, the bride of Christ, is to be unified and in glad submission to her head. If she embraces the spirit of this age and sees herself as a collection of autonomous, self-seeking, atomistic individuals, then she is a house divided and will not stand. Her prayer becomes, not thy will, but my will be done. The threefold cord that is not easily broken is then rendered a useless pile of frayed threads. And so the Holy Spirit... In perfect Wisdom reveals this to us in his letter to the Corinthians, that the church is not a disjointed collection of individuals competing for preeminence and pursuing independent desires, but a body, a body, a single whole composed of many parts working together in the service of their head. Let us then now take a closer look at the text and... As we do so, we'll consider it in three sections. For ease of remembering, I'll use the following three headings. The Declaration, the Temptation, and the Application. So first, let's take a look at the Declaration. Beginning at verse 12, Paul writes, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, Are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Paul begins the analysis declaring the obvious. The body is a singular entity. It is one. It is a unity. But... It is composed of many different but connected parts, and and so is Christ. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And we, the church, are to grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint Supplies, And as we read this text, we are to firmly situate in our mind's eye the picture of a body, of a human body. The body has a head, and that head is Christ. All that the body does, how it functions, whatever it does is to be governed by what the mind, which is located in the head, wills to do. The instruction given to the rest of the body comes from the head. The body is in submission to the head in cheerful obedience. There is an organic and necessary union of the body to its head that is life-sustaining according to God's design. The church is therefore an organism connected and obedient to its head, and it is decidedly not... If we follow the analogy, an organization subject to the ever-changing design, whims, and imaginations of man. And the church is assembled and brought together into a unified whole by the work of the Holy Spirit. People from different walks, various nationalities and cultures are baptized into this one body, whether Greek or Jew, slave or free, red, yellow, black and white. We are precious in His sight. We're precious in His sight. And our Creator God brings us all together into one body, fitting us together as we partake of that one spirit. But note that Paul is quick to acknowledge that the body is not just a single thing, a single member, but it is composed of many members. And so we are to understand the metaphor of the body in the head in the unity of the whole, and in its composition of its members. And this is just one of the metaphors used in Scripture that helps us to understand what the church is and how it is composed of many members. To quickly mention just a couple of metaphors, we could turn to Hebrews 13 and read beginning there at verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we have here a picture, not of a head and a body, but of the great shepherd of the sheep, which is plural. Christ is the shepherd of his flock. One sheep does not a flock make, and a healthy flock needs and knows its shepherd. Likewise, earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we see the metaphor of a building is used to describe the church. Christ is the foundation. Paul is the master builder, and the church is the building. The church is not an individual brick, or a window, or a door, or even a pile of bricks, but rather the assembled whole structure, serving The purpose for which it is designed. And as the building is constructed and maintained in accordance with the architect's plans, everything is aesthetically pleasing, serviceable in all the design functions, and it lasts for generations. But when a builder deviates from the plans, things at that point begin to go haywire. Appropriate proportions can be lost windows and doors are in the wrong place. The columns may be too large or too small or missing altogether. The roof leaks or we find ourselves wondering why there is no storage place for the linens. But not wanting to abuse the metaphor, I'll stop stop right there. But hopefully you get the picture. The Scripture teaches us in multiple ways using multiple metaphors that the church is composed of many members, multiple parts, working together for the glory of God. So in the second place, we come to the possibility of tension in the body metaphor. The great temptation is for us to see ourselves as disconnected from, rather than connected to, the body as a whole. And as a consequence, we end up being discontented. So Paul continues at verse 15. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God, God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as He pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? As Paul writes his first letter to Timothy, he addresses the subject of contentment, even going so far as to urge Timothy to teach and exhort bond servants to honor and not despise their masters. And then, beginning at verse 3 in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we read, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to But from such, withdraw yourself. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we, ought, we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Those who would try and use godliness as a means to attain wealth or status or position or to be avoided... But those who possess true godliness with contentment find that there is great gain, much benefit, not only for themselves, but for all those around them, for the whole body. So therefore, returning to our text, we see that the foot cannot and should not despise the hand, nor the ear, the eye. They have different functions that only they can provide, which benefits the whole body. An eye cannot hear and an ear cannot see. And note too, that it is God who sets the members in their appropriate place according to His good pleasure. To depart from this understanding is to fail to consent to the word of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching which accords with true godliness. Discontentment creeps in. And when such contrary teaching is promoted and we fail to consent to sound doctrine, we reveal that we are proud, knowing nothing, obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. And this likely sounds familiar to those who have been through the heartache and pain of a church breakup. And what is the result? What fruit does it bear? Envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions and the useless wranglings of a corrupt mind, destitute of the truth. But as the people of God, we should flee flee these things and pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness, and fight the good fight of faith, and lay hold on eternal life to which we were called, having confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And as we find ourselves placed in the body by God, As an eye, then let us with great contentment be about the business of seeing. Are you an ear? Then listen up and be glad. Are you a foot? Then bear the weight of such responsibility with joy and help the body get where the Lord is leading. After all, if everyone were an elbow, how far down the road would we get and how much discontentment would be evident? And our third point, finally, the application, beginning at verse 20, Paul concludes the instruction, as I read here, but now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No "...much rather, those members of the body which seem weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another." And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. The organic unity of the body, in its very makeup, confesses corporate interdependence. Not independence, but interdependence. And this confession requires genuine humility Interdependence goes against the grain of what has been called rugged American individualism. After all, is it that how the West was won? Actually, no. It was the blood, sweat, and toil of a people who had shared hopes and dreams, who raised families, tamed the land, mined the earth, and built towns. Don't believe the lie of rugged individualism. Rugged? Rugged? Determined? Persevering? Unflappable? Yes. Individual? No. It's a lie that goes all the way back to the garden and follows us like a shadow ever since the fall. There are those that have been baptized, have made a profession of faith, and read their Bibles every day, and yet they see their membership in the body as some sort of ethereal fog without substance and entailing no physical connectedness. These are, at the core, individualist. I am a member of the invisible church, they may say, but I don't understand how they ground this position in Scripture because it is not to be found there. Perhaps, perhaps they don't like being around people. After all, relationships... Relationships can be difficult, and people will eventually let you down. Or perhaps they were a member of a local church at one time, but did not like the role they found themselves in, or felt they did not belong, but failed to pursue contentment with godliness. Maybe they didn't like the necessary accountability that comes with being a part of the body. If the feet take you in a direction you disagree with, though you be a hand... You have little choice but to find yourself heading that way, and in that case, a discontented hand will use, usually choose to leave the body. But more often than not, the individualist's primary struggle is one against authority. In the end, the only authority an individualist will submit to is, is himself. Whether it is the pastor or his neighbor in the pew next to him, he is Unable to heed the exhortation to let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. We may find ourselves disagreeing on a number of points of doctrine. But the fact and existence of many members composing the local body of the church should not be one of those. When we misapprehend the organic and connected nature of the church or even deny it altogether, then it is accurate and fair for the eye to say to the hand, I have no need of you, and for the head to say to the feet, I have no need of you. That would make complete sense. But we see that such a notion is diametrically opposed to the plain teaching before us. And as we seek to understand the nature of belonging to the church, of belonging to the body, we also need to see that meaningful involvement in the body of Christ is incompatible with a sense of inferiority. Paul writes, No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on those we bestow greater honor and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. And So if you are here and you feel that your service in the body is inferior in some way or not appreciated or unhelpful, then let me state that it simply isn't true. While it is true that men will fail in their duties to express gratitude and that presumption of every form is found throughout the church, and this is sad and wrong and something which needs to be repented of and also identifies an area of maturity we need to address, your service is first and foremost to be rendered unto your head, unto God who is in heaven and sees your service, including the motivation of your heart behind that service, And so it is perfectly evaluated and appreciated for what it truly is by the one who matters most. Secondly, and this is connected to contentment, we need to find and accept all our affirmation in and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, this is the affirmation that truly matters most. But thirdly, I exhort myself and all that are here to look for opportunities to show your love to one another and bring a ready word of thanks and affirmation at each opportunity you have. Let us build one another up, and as we receive these tokens of appreciation, may they not puff up our pride, but rather energize and add joy to our service and position in Christ's body. We must always remember that it is God who has composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. God knows. God composes. God gives gifts. God gives opportunity. God gives honor according to his good pleasure. While we should never give place for any feeling of inferiority, we should likewise never possess any sense of superiority. Such feelings necessarily rob others of opportunity and breeds insecurity and destroys meaningful fellowship. And then there's the dark flip side of these wrong perspectives that we need to be diligent in avoiding. That's imagining or accusing any sense of inferiority or superiority against another member of the body. And the truth of the matter is that all of these feelings and perspectives are present, at least in bits and pieces, in every church that you can find. So the only way to be about the work of melding the parts of the body into a unified whole is to humbly yield to God's handiwork. But now God has set, placed the members, each one of them in the body just as he pleased. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. But why is this? Why is this? Part of the answer is given in our text that there should be no schism in the body. Consider this in the context of the metaphor. God sets and composes the body and gives greater honor to those parts which the wisdom of man evaluates as lacking. And he does this so that there should be no schism in the body. The body is to remain unified in her earthly mission, unified in her worship, Unified in her service and unified in her fellowship. She is not to be rent asunder and separated and divided, which is what we see in schism. The head doesn't say to the feet, go fetch me some water, and simultaneously expect the hands to stay put and do the dishes. No, that would be nonsensical, even as schism should be non-existent in the church, We can't dismember ourselves for the sake of pursuing our individual desires and aspirations, nor can we dismember ourselves by withdrawing ourselves from God's appointed role. But there is another implication of being a part of the body, of being connected to one another, serving one another with contentment in the way which God has set things in order, and that is when one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now I think we can easily see two aspects to this whole body suffering whenever one member suffers. The first is whenever a member of the body either can't or refuses to provide the duties of their assigned role in the church. In the case of such refusal... A necessary service is available but missing in action and thus the body attempts to compensate for the lack of service, inefficiently attending to the task or ministry at hand while simultaneously bearing the burden of exhorting the AWOL member or members. In this case, there may even be sin in the camp that needs to be dealt with and repented of. But there can also be the situation where someone is absent due to sickness, injury, or some such reason. In this case, the body suffers, but only temporarily, as others gladly and sympathetically come alongside and fill in the missing service. The other aspect is when a member who is a member of the body, any member, any age, serving in any capacity, suffers It could be a terminal disease, or the loss of a loved one, or the loss of a job. In this situation, all the members also suffer with them. Our souls are burdened at the news or the loss, and we labor in prayer for them. We try to comfort, and we seek the grace of the comforter. We rally and provide meals, or maybe we just sit quietly offering little more than our presence. When one member suffers, all the members suffer along with it. But the other instruction we find here, and this may be something we think much less about and thus likely need to be shored up in, and that is rejoicing with someone else receives an honor or a blessing. When we are a healthy body, that is, what we do naturally, When we recover from a head cold or a cut on the hand, not only do those parts of our body feel better, our whole bodies are ready and energized at the blessing of the healing that has been received. Therefore, it is good and right and even expected that when one of the members of the body in the church receives a special honor, especially if it's an honor we were hoping for, that we are to rejoice with that member with genuine heartfelt gladness and Thanksgiving to God for that particular blessing. And in conclusion, I would encourage us all to lean in to this instruction and declaration from God's word regarding the body of Christ, the church. Let us be aware of the temptations to sin in terms of envy and discontentedness, knowing that God has placed us in the body just as He pleases. We need to know these things, that all parts of the body are vital, any absence of the parts, and the body is incomplete. To some degree, the body will be incompetent when parts are missing. We also need to see that all the parts must be in their proper place. God puts, arranges, and sets them in their place and even gifts them accordingly. The body has not been designed by a committee. Can you imagine what such a body designed by a committee might look like? I I don't want to have any silly pictures here, but what if that committee were our current Congress? Thanks be to God that he has taken care of this and is taking care of this. We need to pursue the connectedness and unity pictured in the body and reject isolation. The church is not isolationist, nor is it individualistic. The church is a called-out people, set-apart, for the service and worship of the one true God. We need to embrace the gifts God has given and pursue contentment with godliness, wherein is great gain for you and for everyone. The the truth is we need each other. We need the church. With this need comes vulnerability and exposure. Our sins are often seen by our brothers and sisters, even when we don't think they are. And so we repent, and we trust the gospel afresh. And as we once again look to the Savior and restored fellowship, we also look to our neighbor and our fellow member of the body, and fellowship is restored there as well. And when we do this, the body is strengthened and healed for even greater service. As Paul writes to the Romans... We also need to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. In practicing this, we are to be spiritu- we are being spiritually matured and made more and more into the image of Christ. I find it helpful as John Piper noted that God's emotional life is infinitely complex beyond our ability to fully comprehend. How, how can God weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice when these prayers are coming to Him at the same ta- time, in fact, always coming to Him with no break at all? Or who can comprehend that God is angry at the sin of the world every day, Psalm 711, and yet every day, every moment, He is rejoicing with tremendous joy because somewhere in the world a sinner, a sinner is repenting. Luke fifteen seven. Who can comprehend that God continually burns with hot anger at the rebellion of the wicked, grieves over the unholy speech of his people, Ephesians 4, yet takes pleasure in them daily, Psalm 149, and ceaselessly makes merry over penitent prodigals who come home. That's a wonderful quote from John Piper. This is the infinite God we serve. Let us therefore be of the same mind toward one another. And finally, in verse 27 of our text, we find something of a a transitional sentence. It both summarizes the teaching presented and leads into a list of some of the various gifts that God has given to the church and to her members. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. There is one body, made up of many members with a variety of gifts. This is the anatomy of the church. We're all different. There's variation everywhere you look. Sometimes it's difficult, but as we work together, it is beautiful, and it is easy, and it is powerful. So let us heed Paul's closing exhortation in this chapter to earnestly desire the best gifts according to God's appointment, and see the more excellent way. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we thank you that you have called us out of the world and into your church, the bride of Christ. We're thankful that although we are unworthy of this great privilege in ourselves, in Christ we are made worthy. And we humbly ask for your continued protection and provision of your church. Guide us and keep us. Keep us faithful and diligent in all you have revealed in your holy word. Grow us in love for one another and in love for our great God. Bless us and use us. Make us one body, fit and sound in every member, according to your good pleasure And this we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom. For we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.